Okay, well, we turn to the world's most prepared talks. <laughs> Two and a half years ago, the FIC exec said, we think the brand new national director should give the talks at the FIC conference. Uh, 20, 21, 22, here we are. I can't work out whether these are going to be the best talks ever or this is going to be like that lasagna. You know, you've heated it up in the microwave three times and it's just not quite... Anyway, whatever happens, I have learnt so much about the kingdom of God and I hope in God's kindness you might learn some of that as well. So here we go. A few years ago uh, at our home um, in Matraville, Kathy and I were running a, a Simply Christianity course and basically the course is to read through Luke's gospel. One of, the, one of the men who came along was an overseas student from Mongolia. His name was Otgong. And talk about fresh to the Christian thing. As we're reading through Luke's gospel, his English was good enough to, to get it. He get, we get to the, towards the end and he says, excuse me, what is crucified? He'd never heard of the crucifixion. So we're reading on and then we get to the, the passage of the, the thief on the cross as he speaks to Jesus. Um, I think, Dean, we've got a little uh, frieze here. Of a, this is outside a church in Melbourne, this beautiful kind of frieze or statue, uh, except they should have read the story because it reads Jesus speaks to the good thief. Anyway, that's another... Anyway, uh, I, didn't, I didn't say anything. I just took the picture. <laughs> Listen to what the story goes. You, you know how it goes. Um, Luke twenty three forty. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so as the profound and thoughtful group leader, I said to the group, how do you think he knew that Jesus was a king? Uh, do you think maybe he saw Jesus do a miracle or maybe he heard Jesus um, speaking or preaching, or etc. before he you know, was arrested? Or what, what? And the little man from Mongolia put his hand up and said, maybe he read the sign. I thought, I've read the story, I never thought, and there it is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's how I felt, right? Luke 23, 38, there was writ a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Talk about seeing things for fresh eyes, it's brilliant. Now, here's my question. Why does a thief say that? Why does a thief, or terrorist or insurrectionist, depends how you translate the word Lysertes. Why does he say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom? He doesn't say, take me to heaven. He doesn't say, Lord, forgive me. He says, you're the king. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. I've got three questions I want to answer in this talk. Why did the thief more terrorists, however you want to train them. Why did the thief expect Jesus to rule a kingdom? And why did Pontius Pilate know enough to actually put that sign above Jesus' head? Why call him the king? Why talk about a kingdom? Second question. In all four Gospels, the Pharisees and other religious leaders are asking Jesus for a sign, a sign from heaven. Matthew 16, 1. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Or John 6, verse 30. So they asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Now that sign is after he's just fed a crowd of 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread. 
Why is it that the signs that Jesus does are never enough? He feeds 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread. He heals cripples. He, he heals lepers. He opens the eyes of the blind and it's not enough. Now, I know there's hard-hearted unbelief, etc., but but why? Why is it never enough? The amazing things he did wasn't enough. Third question. Even John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, has second thoughts about him. So Ruth just read for us, Matthew 11, verse 2. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Why does John have second thoughts? Why is it that Jesus isn't enough? So there's three questions. Where did the idea of kingdom come from? Why is Jesus, why are Jesus signs not enough? And why did even John have second thoughts? And if I could perhaps add a fourth one, what's it got to do with me or us? What's it got to do with us? Let's have a look at the kingdom of God. I think you make a good case that the kingdom of God is the greatest theme that unites the scriptures. It is the theme that runs through the whole of the Bible from beginning to end. Vaughan Roberts' book, uh, God's Big Picture, excellent book. Here's how he defines kingdom of God. He says this, God wants to bring people back to himself who willingly submit to his rule. That is what is meant by the kingdom of God. Not the area where he rules, for he rules everywhere, but the sphere where his rule is gladly accepted. Now, Vaughan Roberts is way further up the intellectual food chain than me. This is a wonderful book. Um, he's a great man. Uh, I'm a humble man with a lot to be humble about. Um, but I, it's not quite an adequate definition. Why? Well, George Eldon Ladd's book, The Presence of the Future... Uh, what a joy that was. Do you know, I bought that book when I was at college in the 80s and it sat on my shelf for 30 years. And when I had to write these talks, I pulled it off the shelf and I, start, and I thought, oh, I wish I'd read this 30 years ago. Uh, if you can get a copy of it, The Presence of the Future, it's gold. Listen to what he says or how he does it. This is um, Hokima, um, however you pronounce his name, quoting George Eldon Ladd, but it's from The Presence of the Future. He says this, the kingdom of God must not be understood as merely the salvation of certain individuals or even as the reign of God in the hearts of people. It means nothing less than the reign of God over his entire created universe. The kingdom of God means that God is kind and acts in history to bring history to a divinely directed goal. The whole of creation moving in that direction. Now, I've got, I've got time this week to give three talks. The kingdom promise, the kingdom in conflict, and the kingdom in generosity. There should really be a fourth talk, the return of the king, but that's, I guess, for next time. Now, let's go. The kingdom promised in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God is shown as king again and again and again, and just to show, in the Psalms in particular. So Psalm 145, verse 10, you get the message. Let me read this to you. Psalm 145, verse 10. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures through all generations. Or Psalm 103 verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. And because God is a king, he is also 
a judge. He comes to judge, Psalm 96, verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world, the world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Verse 13, let all creation rejoice before the Lord. Why? For he comes to, ju- uh, sorry, for he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness. And this idea of God bringing his kingdom, even in the darkest times for Israel or, or Judah, even in the darkest times, that was the ray of hope. So you read Daniel chapter 2, and Nebuchadnezzar has the dream of the huge statue with the head of gold and then chest of silver and bronze and the feet of iron and clay. What's the take-home of all that? That the God of heaven will set up his kingdom during that the rain, uh, during the rain with the feet and the clay, etc. And he's, it will fill the whole world. The kingdom of God is coming. Now, it's easy to take that for granted because the, the way the Bible sees history and its influence, well, not just Christian culture, the Western world, but the way the Bible sees history is history is going somewhere. It, it's moving to a goal or a climax. History has a trajectory. Now, that's very different to the nature religions uh, in Canaan in the Old Testament. It's different to Greek philosophy. Let me read you something from, about the Greeks. Um, in the ancient Greek world, the Greeks had what might be called a cyclical view or cyclical view of history. Things occur in endless cycles so that what is happening today will someday be repeated. On the basis of such a view, it's impossible to find any real meaning in history. It just goes round and around and around. And you've sat here and listened to this talk before, and I've given it before, and I'll give it again, I guess. We'll go round and round. And, or in Tom Holland's book, uh, Dominion, very fashionable at the moment, Tom Holland talks about when, uh, in the 17th century, Roman Catholic missionaries went to China and found such a different worldview. He says this, um, one of the Jesuits wrote this, the Chinese seem to have no conception of, a creation, of creation or of a God. Rather than a universe obedient to the laws of an omnipotent deity, they believed instead in a naturally occurring order formed by consist, constituent elements, fire, water, earth, metal, wood, that were forever waxing and waning in succession. Everything went in cycles, bound together by their bonds of natural influence Cosmos and humanity oscillated eternally between rival poles, yin and yang. And when you have that view of history, you, you can't really have progress. In fact, you don't even really want progress. It just things never change. There's no incentive to do that. But the Old Testament, the New Testament, see history's moving to a goal, and that goal is the kingdom of God. And when you dig down... And look, there's two different, two different ways that the kingdom is shown in the Old Testament. One is the idea of a, of a kingdom that will operate within this world with a Davidic king, that David or his descendant would reign again. Uh, like in 2 Samuel chapter 7, your descendants will reign forever. You see it in Amos chapter 9, where God will restore um, David's fallen tent. Or Isaiah 9, unto us the son is born. So there's the, the Davidic king idea, but then there's also the, the apocalyptic vision of the end of the world kingdom uh, as well, that you get in Daniel chapter 7 with the vision of the Son of Man coming. And as well as that, it, it kind of sprinkled all through it is the promise of the day of the Lord. I don't have time to show you all the verses there, but 
Um, sometimes the day of the Lord seems like it'll be a judgment day that happens within history. Other times it'll be the end of the world as we know it, uh, the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, you get that, let me show you, Isaiah 65, verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Now, what I've, what I've noticed or found or, or learned, when you come to the, the New Testament, you've got the Davidic king idea and the, the apocalyptic kingdom coming. There's evidence of both of those in people's expectations as, as Jesus preaches, etc. So in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the crowd of 5,000. What do they do? They want to come and make him a king by force. In Mark chapter 10, James and John, well, actually it's their mother, but um, uh, bring them, they come to Jesus and what do they want? They want to sit in his left hand and right hand in his kingdom that's about to come. Or in Acts chapter 1, they're asking, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You've got the kind of Davidic king idea. But what the religious leaders are asking when they ask for a sign from heaven, they are expecting some, well, I wrote down the sentence, a cataclysm a cataclysmic eruption into history which would bring history to an end that's why jesus signs are never enough that they're looking for bang the end of the world uh, it would be like a tsunami or a, a volcano that would you wouldn't sleep through it and i can't help but think that's what john the baptist is expecting because john comes preaching if you've got your bible there or it'll be on the screen matthew chapter 3 so you've got all of those expectations. This, that's a very broad brush, Old Testament. John the Baptist turns up, first prophet for centuries. John, uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Of course, uh, in Isaiah 40, which is being quoted, the voice is making the way for Yahweh, for God himself. Matthew 3, verse 4, John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. I don't know if it's ever struck you that John deliberately dresses like Elijah the prophet in the Old Testament. Deliberately. And why? Well, Elijah's promised to turn up the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, it's promised that Elijah would turn up before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And here's the man dressed just like Elijah. Matthew 3, 5. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So for John, being ethnically Jewish or a descendant of Abraham, that's not enough. And normally, they would only baptize Gentile proselytes or Gentile converts. John's even baptising Jews because their ethnicity is not enough to save them. Or 3.11, his message, I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So the coming one will bring the judgment. Those who believe, those who are repented will be baptised with the Spirit and those who are not will be baptised with fire. And so in the middle of that, Jesus turns up preaching and John has second thoughts. 
Now, why? Well, it's worth thinking about. Where is John when he has his second thoughts about Jesus? Well, three of the Gospels tell us he's in prison. In fact, Josephus, the first century historian, gives us the political reason or the the political analysis for why John's in prison. Let me read it to you. I always think it's interesting when the non-Christian historians and the New Testament report on the same event and they dovetail so beautifully. Here's what Josephus tells us about uh, John being put in prison. Now, when many others came in crowds about him, about John, for they were greatly moved or pleased by hearing his words, Herod, who feared lest the great influence John had over the people might put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything he should advise. Accordingly, John was sent a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to Machaerus, the castle I before mentioned. The ruins of that castle still stand and look over the Dead Sea. I think we've got them here, yep, thanks to Google. Um, uh, Matthew and Mark tell the story of John's arrest and it is interesting how they show that John's like Elijah in another way, isn't he? John faces, well, Elijah faced what? Ahab and Jezebel, a weak king and a very nasty piece of work for the queen. And that's exactly what John the Baptist faced. Herod and Herodias, and that's the end of, uh, he met the end of his life with that. Now, that's all context. Matthew 11, verse 2, John has second thoughts. The passage Ruth read for us. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, in some ways, that's a fair enough question, isn't it? Because Jesus himself, when he preaches at his hometown in Nazareth, picks up Isaiah 61, verse 1, and says he's come to proclaim freedom to the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. And what was John expecting? I suspect it was the, this apocalyptic kingdom. But even if it was just the political kingdom that the crowds, after the feeding of the 5,000, wanted What's Jesus doing? He's preaching and being kind to people and talking about love. And that Jesus' answer is surprisingly gentle. Look at what he says in verse 4. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, and, and, and from Isaiah 61. And what's he saying? The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf can hear, and, and the dead are raised. But notice the climax. The poor are evangelized. Euangelizontai, uh, okay? The good news is proclaimed. But you notice what he says right at the end? Blessed is the one who does not stumble. Um, in the active case, scandalizo. What's it mean? It's a word we get scandal from, obviously. But to cause someone to sin or to cause someone to give up their faith. Or if it's in the passive, to give up one's faith or be led into sin or fall into sin. When you look for it, it's surprising how often this word's used. Jesus talks about it in um, Matthew 18 where he talks about causing little ones to stumble 
to be scandalised, to, to give up their faith or to sin. Or in the parable of the four soils, the second soil, the one that's got no depth, um, when trouble or persecution come, they scandalizo, they give up their faith. Or Jesus says uh, on the night uh, he's arrested, he says, you will all fall away. He said, um, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. They, they'll, they'll give up, they'll fall away. And what does Jesus say to John? Blessed is the one who doesn't give up on account of me. How will that be? Well, when your expectations aren't met, when it's not how you would write the script. Another great quote from George Eldon Ladd. He puts things so much better than I can. I can't resist. Let me, let me read this, this. He says, Jesus is actually asking more of John than we might expect. More of John than we might realise. He says this, The Jews expected the kingdom to be like a great tree under which the nations would find shelter. They could not understand how one could talk about the kingdom apart from such an all-encompassing manifestation of God's rule. How could the coming glorious kingdom have anything to do with the poor little band of Jesus' disciples? Rejected by the religious leaders, welcomed by tax collectors and sinners, Jesus looked more like a deluded dreamer and the bearer of the kingdom of God. Jesus' answer is, first the tiny seed, then the large tree. And the difference between Jesus' preaching and John's is this. Jesus is preaching the kingdom has arrived. The kingdom is here. But the kingdom has arrived and the kingdom will grow in a way they were not expecting. It's all about expectations. And, okay, that's happened in Matthew chapter 11. You turn over two pages and what have you got? You've got Matthew chapter 13 and the whole chapter is about expectations about the kingdom of God and how it will come. I'll show you. And you've all you've heard all these parables. But once you understand why is Jesus doing this, he's explaining the way the kingdom will come and how it's different to what they were expecting. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Joy, not expected, whatever it takes, I'll have it, and what Jesus is saying is hidden. Most people, so many people can't see it. Or the pearl merchant who finally finds that perfect pearl and sells everything to have it. You imagine, imagine having something so precious and not being able to see it or finding out afterwards that you lost it. Here's a little drawing. Um, it's creatively called The Virgin and Child with a Flower on a Grassy Bench. That's what it's called. In 2016, a man in the USA uh, went to a garage sale in Massachusetts and bought a fake jade necklace for a dollar and this small drawing for $30 US. At Christmas time, December, 21, uh, December of last year, a panel of experts in the British Museum in London delivered a stunning answer. They said the artwork was an undiscovered drawing by Albrecht Dürer, a renowned German artist born in 1471 and is worth tens of millions of dollars be great imagine being the guy who sold it to him at the garage sale <laughs> he had to sit in the garage for how long and this whole thing 30 dollars 
I wonder how many people will feel that way about the kingdom of God one day. And how will the kingdom come? Well, another parable. Matthew 13, verse 31. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. It'll start small, but it'll grow huge. It'll be like yeast in a batch of dough. It'll affect everything. And yet, the weeds and the wheat parable, which I don't have time to read, will show that sometimes it's hard to tell who's in the kingdom and who's not, but it'll all become clear in the end. And when you understand this, it'll, it'll affect or change the your whole worldview. So I read the Bible regularly now with a, a couple of businessmen who are um, a little bit older than me and they're, they're new Christians and they, they are new to the faith and they see things with fresh eyes and they ask hard questions. And so uh, Stuart, my friend, will say sometimes, what is God doing in the world? If God was a CEO of a company, uh, like and the way the world is run, he'd get the sack. I say, well, that's not how I'd put it, mate. Um, Maybe, and I don't, I, I don't think he's quite seen this yet. I said, maybe, maybe God is doing something that most people can't see. Maybe God is growing his kingdom. The mustard seed has grown, and if you have eyes to see it, people are coming into his kingdom every day. Well, let me show you. The mustard seed has grown. Pew Research, um, worldwide, estimate... 2.2 billion people in 2010 called themselves Christian. By 2050, 2.9 billion. Rough figures, one person in three worldwide will call themselves Christian. Now, call yourself Christian, 2.2 billion is basically a meaningless figure because 44% uh, of Australians still say they're Christian. So what does it mean? Well, here's an interesting book, if you like statistics. Rodney Stark's book, The Triumph of Faith, is a book full of statistics. Now, statistically, some of you will like it, I know. So, all right, if you've got a propeller hat at home, etc. What it is, um, the Gallup World Poll Organisation polls people on different social and political uh, questions. They're working in 163 countries. Sadly, they can't work in China. The government won't let them. So that's a pretty big chunk of the world. But 163 countries, here they go. They've polled about who, who is Christian and what they believe, etc. Nominal Christian affiliation, the same as Pew Research, basically, 2.2 billion. What does that mean? Okay, so they decided to drill down further. And they asked, have you been to a place of worship, church, etc., in the last week? That sharpens it up. When you do that you get to 1.16 billion people in churches around the world. Not only that, the Christian faith is growing and growing in places it hasn't before. In the last few generations, huge amount. Philip Jenkins um, is a professor at uh, Baylor University, the same university as Rodney Stark. Uh, he wrote a book, The Next Christendom. Now, it's getting a little old now, but I just love these quotes Things haven't changed that much in 20 years. He wrote in 2002. Um, it, at the time that book came out, The Next Christendom, he uh, was interviewed by Atlantic Monthly magazine. Listen to what he says. We are living in revolutionary times. 
Worldwide Christianity is actually moving towards supernaturalism and neo-orthodoxy, in many ways towards the ancient worldview expressed in the New Testament. In the global south, the areas we often think of primarily as the third world, huge and growing Christian populations, currently 480 million in Latin America, 360 million in Africa, 313 million in Asia, compared to 260 million in North America. Just huge at the global south. South America, Asia, Africa. Huge growth. In 2014, he um, uh, did an interview with Christianity Today as a kind of a follow-up to the book. Um, He said this, I received all sorts of good reviews, but the best review was in Washington, D.C. from a wealthy Episcopal lady. She said, I read your book. Just sit on this slide, Dean. Don't go to the next one, please. Yep. She said, I've read your book. It's absolutely wonderful. But you've told us about this new kind of Christianity exploding around the world. All these hundreds of millions of new Christians. They're they're so passionate. They're so devoted. It's like the New Testament. Now, what do you think she says next? I'll show you. She says, tell me, Professor Jenkins, as Americans and as Christians, what can we do to stop this? There is the gangrenous, is that the adjective for gangrene? Uh, There is the gangrenous dead heart of liberalism, isn't it? And I would have just said, lady, you will not stop this. You will not stop this. The kingdom of God will grow. Will grow. And I'll talk tomorrow about it being a supernatural kingdom. Or another one from the Washington Post. Think Christianity is dying? No, Christianity is shifting dramatically. Um, in 1980, more Christians were found in the global south than the north for the first time in a thousand years. Today, the Christian community in Latin America and Africa alone account for a billion people. Over the past hundred years, Christianity grew from less than 10% of Africa's population to its nearly 500 million today. One out of four Christians in the world presently is in Africa. Now, that's one. Of, we don't hear it in the news cycle so much. Okay, why? Because it just doesn't quite fit the narrative um, uh, the narrative that they that they want but folks it does feel like the soil is hard here in Australia doesn't it? Uh, it it's hard there's some hard hearts here I don't know if you noticed in June um, three months ago or so um, the first of the figures for the 2021 national census came out and the one that of course was celebrated most was is my favourite City Morning Herald. Abandoning God, Christianity plummets as non-religious, as non-religious surges in, cens- in census. So you can see there the figures. Uh, we've got the figures there, Dean? Yep. Um, uh, uh, from 2011, no, no religion. You've gone from 22 to 30 to 39%. It has jumped. And so the media celebrates. Church attendance has fallen off a cliff in the last 50 years. Uh, you know, Christians, we've. When I went into ministry work in 1983, Christians were the do gooders. Now we're the haters because we're against love. Not everyone thinks that, but that's it's almost been gospel climate change. Rodney Stark's book, The Triumph of Faith, is interesting. It does show 
how our culture is different to other places. So he's listed uh, 98 countries and the number of people uh, professing to be atheists. Um, South Korea is a bit of an anomaly uh, at 29%. Seems like South Korea has a huge number of churches and lots of atheists. Um, the communist countries, China, 27%, and Vietnam, 23%, you'd expect. But then there's a whole tier of high atheism countries. Um, France, 17%, Taiwan, 17%, Sweden, 16%, and Australia, 16%. Interestingly, New Zealand, 7%, Canada, 6%, and the United States, 4%. We're actually culturally quite different to the USA. Why are we so hard-hearted? Roy Williams um, was a very accomplished lawyer, became a Christian later in life and has written some interesting books. He wrote Post-God Nation. Uh, if you, it's a 300-page book. If you want to get it in an hour... Roy's done a lecture at the City Bible Forum called The Secular Juggernaut, where he summarised this, and probably there's no surprises. Ignorance of the Christian message, scientism, the belief that science is the only truth, and really the biggest one by far is simply how rich we have become. Through the eye of a needle, etc. Now, that's the environment, if you like, but I'll tell you something, the churches where the gospel is preached clearly, the authority of the Bible cherished, leadership is clear and churches are welcoming, not always, but overwhelmingly those churches are healthy and strong and growing. FIC, um, uh, for those who are new, we had a little session this afternoon, here's uh, the usual suspects who started in 2004 a lot more hair in that than, uh, than today. But anyway, uh, yeah. But that's the leadership of the churches that started FIC in 2004. As you can see, in the kindness of God, yes, we've, we've grown. There's around 8,000 adults and just over 2,000 kids in FIC churches week by week. And we'll hear, over the next couple of days, we'll hear lots of uh, great stories. We'll celebrate church plants and plans and uh, etc. But I don't want to be triumphalist. I want to finish on a slightly different note. And that's this. You ever thought about John sitting in prison? So John sits in prison and even he asks the question, are, are you the one to come? Because it's not, it's not what I expected. And Jesus is so gentle in his answer to him. In fact, Jesus is gentle to John and then Jesus um, praises John to the crowds as his disciples leave. And yet, when Jesus begins to preach, God removes John from the picture. And, and John's taken away, which I suspect is not what John thought would happen. And I want to ask you, for you tonight, maybe your own personal expectations about ministry aren't what you thought either. And maybe you're doing it tough and there are disappointments in ministry. Um, I've been doing this 40 years. I could list a few. 2010, Kathy and I thought we'd be able to start a church plant in Bondi Junction where we were um, 
really my failure of leadership and seven years later we close it down. Now I know my dear sweet wife will find positives etc etc and, um, and tell me I failed in leadership as well. Uh, but it didn't work. Three of our four children are not walking with the Lord. They're close to us. They're not close to Jesus. That's a load I carry around. And for you, maybe expectations not met, disappointments. I want to say we'll kind of do some celebrating over the next couple of days and hear good stories. But we'll also hear about the need for resilience. And on Wednesday night, we'll hear from the Radloffs and Roger Burgess about resilience. And why do you need resilience? Because it's hard work and you get knocked about. So I guess I just wanted to say this because if you are struggling or life's not how you expect it or ministry's difficult, it can be a bit, and people are celebrating, you know, there's a bit of, you know, rah-rah, which is great. It can feel like that, you know the proverb that says, like one who takes away a garment on a cold day or like vinegar poured on a wound is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. True, isn't it? So let me say something to you, my brothers or sisters, if you are doing it tough, if the, the expectations are not how you'd write, if it's not how you'd write the script, well, that's all right, that happens. But someone else is writing the script who knows what they're doing. And the kingdom of God pushes forward and will not be stopped. It is going somewhere. And we'll look more at that in the next couple of days And what does the Lord Jesus say? Blessed is the one who keeps trusting him because he's got this and he's got you. You pray with me? Our Father, please give us eyes to see your kingdom, the lordship of Jesus. Please give us hearts to treasure it. We ask, please, we might keep trusting the Lord Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, even when things are not as we expected. We ask this in his name. Amen.